Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. I'm really excited today for our interview that we have. This is with another author of nonfiction for students. This one, though, is a little bit different because this is our first middle grade YA author. I had the pleasure of talking to Steve Schenken about his newest book, Fallout. And this focuses in, as we'll hear, on the Cold War. It is geared towards ages 10 and up. I have it in my elementary library. It is the perfect fit for my students who are reading World War II, Alan Gratz, those types of books, and want a really exciting adventure, kind of edge of your seat story about what happened next. It does an incredible job of it. When I was reading it, as I often do with the nonfiction picture books, I'm reading and looking for evidence of primary sources, thinking that this scene or that scene probably had some type of primary source documentation that led to that scene looking like it did. And so I couldn't wait to talk to Steve. And I'll be honest with you, the interview for me was even more enjoyable and more exciting and more interesting than I thought it was. There was a point, if I had video of this, you would have just saw my jaw drop as he was telling me some of these primary sources that he was accessing. It was great. I hope you think it's great. Thanks so much for listening, for subscribing, for rating, and for sharing. Let's get right to the interview. We are here today with an author. I was looking down his list of books, and it's long. It is a long list. I'm not even going to try to give all of them, but I am going to give you some of the highlights and some of my favorites. So we've got the author of Bomb, Undefeated, Port Chicago 50, Born to Fly, and his newest book, the one that we're going to be talking about today, which is Fallout. We have none other than Steve Shankin here with us on the Primary Source Podcast. Steve, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's, it's exciting. It's fun to be here. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your book, Fallout. And let me give the full title because I think it gives you, our, our people who haven't read it yet, a little bit of a clue about what this is going to be about. Fallout, Spies, Super Bombs, and the Ultimate Cold War Showdown. Yeah, you make it sound good. It's funny. I don't. I use. I'm always against uh, subtitles because I feel like, you know, it, it makes it sound more informational than maybe I want it to be. But, but it, it it's smart. It makes you really think about what you're trying to do with a book, with nonfiction. And I think, I think that's a pretty good summary there. So tell us what you're. Tell us a little bit about this. What. It's a big scope book. I mean, there's a lot going on over a really big period of time. But if you could give us kind of the nickel tour, what would you say Fallout is about? It's a Cold War thriller. That's what I'm going for. And so, but it's, of course, it's nonfiction. But I'm very much inspired by 
by Cold War and spy thrillers, which would normally appear in, uh, you would think of them as novels or, or as movies. But the, the basic idea is a continuation follow-up of the story in Bomb. So I'm not going to try to cover the whole Cold War, obviously, in one book. I want to make it a page turn or a thriller, and I, and I picked a set of, of stories and storylines, and it's really focused in the middle of the Cold War, late 1950s and mostly in the early 1960s, a series of, of incidents and crises leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. But the, the real heart of it is, okay, scientists now during the Cold War have figured out how to pack the power of stars inside a bomb. But we're not, I mean, that's, that's a genius thing in and of itself, but we're not as a, as a people, as a species, not, we're not dumb enough to actually use them, are we? And, and that's very much an open question during these years. I suppose you could say it still is. But if you look at the history of the world, and, and for instance, Kennedy thought of it this way, said, you know, throughout the history, as far as I could tell, um, human beings have developed a new kind of weapon, and then they fought a war with it. And that's been the way it's been since the caves through World War II. And how are we going to get off of that, that roller coaster? How do we get off of that track? Because the next time we fight a war, it's going to be over in a few minutes and it'll probably kill everybody. And yet we're still moving toward it, very much so in, in the middle of the Cold War with this series of showdowns between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And so that's really the heart of the book is, is examining that question. How could we ever be so stupid to get ourselves in a situation where we might actually be about to fight with these weapons? I almost felt like as I was reading the book that in some moments that you were sharing, and, and a lot of these were new to me. I mean, I had my kind of my basic understanding of the Cold War probably that I had from high school and not much more than that. But it seemed like there were moments where it wasn't even going to be were we so stupid to get ourselves into the situation, but almost where there are going to be so many like layers of bureaucracy and structure and decision making going on at different levels where we were almost going to just stumble into it in a way that was going to be hard to point to on the tail end. And, and one thing that I really appreciated with the book is you, your ability to kind of connect the dots in ways between, um, I guess for lack of a better term, low, lower level players and kind of the big wigs that we, we think of as the decision makers. And, and one thing I think that came across to me is this idea that it wasn't just, um, Kennedy and Khrushchev at, at, at points, there were a lot of other people that were making decisions and, and thankfully made the right ones to get us through a lot of hairy situations. Absolutely. Or got lucky. But yeah, absolutely. They, they, you have these two leaders and, and they're eyeball to eyeball, but they both, at least in the back of their mind, are, are aware that they can't let this go too far. And yet they do. And, and, What's really scary about it is, like you say, there were things that were beyond their control, things that could have sparked a series of events. I mean, tell me, show me one person who could explain why World War One started. You know, still no, I've still never heard an explanation of that, except just that there were powers and they all had weapons and they didn't like each other. That's the only reason. I mean, so why wouldn't that happen again? And, I, and, and Kennedy was obsessed, and Khrushchev too. They both were students of history. 
and yet, as you say, there were these all these events, and I love that. I love taking this big picture history, and but then finding little unknown people who affected it in some some unexpected way, and I found a lot of that that kind of stuff for Fallout. Well, I think that leads us right into this idea of of primary sources because I think that this I'm hoping maybe that is one way that you found some of these lesser known individuals. So can you tell us a little bit about what primary sources you came across in your research and and kind of how you came across them? Yeah, I mean, I when I go to schools, I always say I start in the library and then people think I'm just saying that because the librarian is is listening, but it's not true. I always I don't start with primary sources. I start with a big nonfiction book, you know, or a set of them, a stack of them on a certain subject. And what I'm looking for, I'm looking for stories and specifically looking for clues toward primary sources. And that, that's a big part of the process. So right away, I mean, sometimes an opening scene will suggest itself right away. And in this case, I, I found this amazing story of this paper boy in Brooklyn in, in the 1950s. Perfect, because he's 12, 13 years old, just like many of the readers will be, hopefully, for Fallout. And and he's on this route. He's just, it's the most normal thing. He's collecting money from people who get the Brooklyn Eagle and, and yet stumbles into a, a spy ring. And the specifics of it, just in brief, is, is that it's some, some teachers, some retired teachers on the top floor of this building pay, pay him with a set of coins, a bunch of them, and he drops them accidentally on the stairwell and a nickel breaks open, breaks in half, and inside is a message, some kind of coded message. And it seems like something from a movie. In fact, it is a, a coded message from one Soviet spy to another. He didn't know that, of course, but it's a good example of a completely unknown, normal kid stumbling into this massive, you know, stumbling into the Cold War. And so I love that. And I, you can find that in mentioned with not much more detail than what I just said in, you know, any story about this part of the Cold War. But yeah, so then you want to really dig back toward primary sources. Interviews with uh, with this kid, this kid named Jimmy Bozart, and, and, and there are some of those. And I talked to some people who talk to him. Sometimes that's the best you can do. And, and also the FBI. FBI files are sometimes really helpful primary sources, and they're often available either online or through a Freedom of Information Act request, which is easy enough to make. And so I looked at the FBI files for, you know, what, what, was, what would it be like to be the investigator who this hollow nickel makes its way to you, and it has some kind of coded message inside, and what do you do? And, and that was very useful for me as a writer to be able to follow up that opening scene of the kid with the FBI starting an investigation. And they would try to figure out, who, who, where would you get a nickel like this? And, and they even described going to magic shops, going to stores that sold items for magicians and saying, would you ever, uh, have you ever seen something like this? And so that's a great, that's gold to me. That's a scene. That's a beautiful little moment. And that the clerk in one store said, no, we uh, not only have I never seen it, but you would never use something like this. It's too small. Why would you, you know, what would you do on stage? You can't fit a, a rabbit inside this nickel. No one would be able to see what you're doing. And 
he pointed out that it was these were really two authentic nickels that someone had taken a tremendous amount of time and skill to hollow out. And that led them to the thought of it being a, a little more sophisticated than something from a magic shop. So those kinds of sources are just are really super valuable. And it wasn't something that I'd ever found in a secondary source in a book about this particular Russian spy or this part of the Cold War. I've got to ask with, with that particular scene, and you're kind of having me flash back now and think about, I, I've never heard anyone talking about, I've never heard an author share that they've looked up uh, FBI files. So this is this has me intrigued. And <laughs> and is this where you get the detail where the... the the um, the the guy who initially gets the nickel then goes and and hunts looks like at the was it like a bingo hall or something like that and then like takes all the money just in case all the coins and then he goes to like an ice cream vendor and takes all the coins does yes. that come from something like that or where did where did that piece come from yeah, because, that was a that was a cop you know because he <laughs> you know that comes from a combination of of sources but it was the recollection of of the police officer, which I think was in a newspaper article a few years later, because this was a secret story. It didn't come out. Now we're getting into spoiler alerts, but it didn't come out for a few years of who this Russian spy was when he was finally arrested in New York. And and then they went to all the, the people involved, like Jimmy became a little bit famous for five minutes at that time, because now he was, he was a high school kid and who had caught a Russian spy. And that's pretty cool. And they interviewed him and the, and so I, I'm, I'm a big fan of looking back at old newspaper. It's essential to me to have an ability to get into newspaper archives, which is luckily much easier now than in the days of microfilm, which sometimes you still have to, to get on the microfilm, but so much has been digitized that you can often find those kind of details right from your desk. It was, yeah, that was, an, that whole scene was an amazing one that as I'm, reading this and I listened to part of it on audiobook I kind of went back and forth and 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 constantly in my mind with these types of books I'm thinking where did he find that information how did he find it, that that information and that whole scene was was kind of fit that bill I think that I did get some kind of clue that there must have been that as you put it kind of a 5 minutes of fame because I think on the is it on the end papers that there's a picture of, of Jimmy shaking someone's hand and, and kind of mm -hmm. getting his accolades? So I thought, okay, well, this, this must have been a story for a minute and been yeah. widely available. Um, but, yeah. but fascinating how all those pieces come together. I've got to ask about another element of the story in a very different context and, and ask about the primary sources, if, I, that kind of, if primary sources came to play a role in this, I have to imagine they did. And that is around some of the writing around Nikita Khrushchev. And specifically, you write about some of the conversations that he has with his son. And they come across as so private and so intimate that for a moment I'm wondering, well, how does Steve get this? You know, and I, I think there's there's probably has to be a, a, a double layer of of challenge when you've got um, you're talking about individuals from other countries, and of course you're talking about very private conversations. I'm imagining that Khrushchev's son at some point shares this, but I'm wondering how does how does this kind of come in front of you and and make its way into the story? 
that's a good question. Those were the most valuable sources and th that I had, I think, because it's just perfect from a writer's standpoint to have it's something you would make up if you if you were writing a, a novel. You'd say, all right, I need to have I need to we see the public Khrushchev, but what's he really like behind the scenes? And, and it's just so valuable. His son, Sergei, was a young rocket scientist who lived at home, you know, so I guess he was unmarried and, and, and lived in Moscow with his dad and mom, which is great for me. Uh, he was in his 20s, but they were the closest of confidants and would take walks together after work. And, and Sergei wrote extensively about those later. He wrote entire books about, about father, as he called him, and included snippets of, of what he remembered, you know, of these conversations. And he actually moved, he wrote in English, he moved to the States in, the, I guess, in the 90s, maybe, and and became a professor, taught at various universities here in, in the United States, and became a citizen, actually. Talk about winning the Cold War. That's just one of, the, one of those, I don't think his dad would have approved, but... So the, those were available and pretty pretty readily available, because when you get into the story, and again... This is the nerdy thing I encourage kids to do, and I'm not sure anyone ever has, but I'm sure someone has, is when you find you're reading a big book about the Cold War, and you and here's a quote from Sergei and Nikita walking in Moscow. Where, and, and I think just what you said, Tom, where, where'd you get that? You know, I'm not accusing you of making it up, but where'd you get it? And, and hopefully it's in the source notes. It has to be. And they'll say, ah, oh, this is from Sergei's book from 1991, or whatever it is. And... And so there's that. And then you can dig a layer deeper if, you, if you're lucky. Um, Sergei was an, was an older guy, but he actually, um, I was able to talk to him. He, this took a little bit of detective work, but I, this is a, another part of finding the primary sources. I saw these, these notes and I said, ah, this is so priceless. I, gotta, I, I would love to ask him just a little bit more. Just, uh, you know, he's not going to remember dialogue, but what was it like? What was your dad thinking? You know, just what you would do if you were making up a character. What do they want? What did he want? What was his main thing that he wanted to achieve? And and so I took some digging. Actually, I got it through. He, he, was, he was not on social media. So, I mean, I'm looking around and old defunct emails. But I had seen that he wrote a, a foreword for another book written by another main figure in the story, um, Gary Powers, who was a U.S. pilot, famously shot down in his U-2 spy plane over Russia in 1960. And his son, Gary Jr., wrote a book about that incident very recently, a couple years ago. And who wrote the foreword but Sergei Khrushchev? I thought, oh, maybe they're friends. And and Gary Jr. is my age, and I thought, this guy's got to be, you know, have some presence on the internet, hopefully. And I was, that was easy to find. And emailed him and had some nice conversations with him. And then he put me in touch with, or he actually, he didn't, yeah, he, he, he did what you could, what you hope would happen in this. He said, well, you know, I don't know. He's kind of, doesn't do a lot of interviews anymore, but I'll mention it to him. And, and if he's willing to talk, I'll let you know. And then he, he gave me Sergey's phone number, which was incredible. And I was able to call him up and and have a he was very generous have a nice long conversation about about some of these scenes and, and to confirm really I didn't it wasn't like I was gonna 
uncover some new information about a conversation they had 60 years ago, but just to kind of confirm and to talk about what, again, what, what they were thinking, you know, back to that original question, what, what they were thinking. And it was very, very helpful. Sergey sadly, he died pretty soon after that, during 2020. But in terms of primary sources, I've never had a conversation like that. I've talked to historical figures before, but never anything like that. Yeah, that's an incredible connection. And I just love <laughs> I, the things that unco get uncovered when you get a chance to talk to authors and just say, how did you find that information? My goodness, that is amazing. Um, and, and it does feel, just, as you said, it does come across like, like you, you're kind of in uh, Khrushchev's head a little bit in, in the, in the, and how that, those scenes are presented. So that makes perfect sense uh, that you're able to get that close to the source to be able to include that, um, amazing. I had a I had a question in mind about there's there's a a, a piece you write in towards the end of or kind of in the afterward of the book I guess where you're revealing kind of how some of this came together and you mentioned how some of the major players I believe on both sides kind of started talking and documenting what they had found and and of course at that when I read that I thought well this has to be a source and a fairly major source of, of kind of how this book is coming together. It just makes me think about how a book like this looks so much different when, if you would not have access to some of these primary sources. Uh, it, it can have, you can, you can tell the tale, but, but there's, there's, a, there's a specific and, and a, a, a deliberate element to the story that, that I have to imagine just doesn't come across when you have just these broader overviews, as you mentioned, that you kind of start with to get the, the general feel of the story, but you may not, if, if those primary sources aren't there, you don't have always the opportunity to dig as deep and, and uncover as much as you would want. That's so true. And it, it's a combination of of those after the fact things, which which is amazing. It's almost surreal that they, they got together in Cuba at some resort, you know, uh, Robert McNamara and, and Castro sit together over a margarita and said, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Uh, which is, it, it really is strange, but that's a valuable source. And then the other thing we didn't even mention, there were so many of them, we won't get into all the sources, but Kennedy, um, luckily for historians, really, um, he, he, we think of Nixon doing this, and Nixon, of course, famously and infamously was recording everything and it ended up being evidence against him but but kennedy was doing the same thing he had a little switch under his desk under his spot at the desk in the cabinet room and which he could turn on a tape recorder in the basement and he did it use it extensively during the cuban missile crisis when they were meeting this group of top leaders of, in the government and military were meeting every couple of hours and he recorded everything and only Bobby Kennedy knew nobody else knew that this existed so this kind of this is far beyond anything you know most historical events are not documented like this even more recently you know stuff since Nixon because I guess presidents have been either not doing it or been more careful about it so it hasn't come out but yeah you can just listen to that stuff I mean talk about the advantages of researching in the 21st century 
that's all the, the JFK library, which is a tremendous source of information, has put all that stuff online. And, and so they're not only transcripts of it, but you can listen to key moments. And it's difficult. It's both thrilling to listen to and a little difficult. You know, people are talking over each other. The recording quality isn't great. But man, you get the feeling. You hear the voices, the accents. You can hear the emotion and stress in people's voices, or if they when they attempt a joke, and and, and another layer, another another way of reaching back through time, which just doesn't exist for most sources. You would that, a source that good just it's one in a thousand that you would you know stories that would have a source like that. Those recordings have to be amazing. I yeah. also think to the to the just an accolade of your book, Steve. It must be. Well, it is. I know, such an amazing book that we talk for twenty minutes before we even get to Kennedy. Like he's such an important player. We've got all kinds of other people to talk about and other moments in this book to talk about. I've got one um, last question for you that I'd love to ask, and and it is. I'm I'm wondering if there was a a, a source, and maybe you've already mentioned it, but but a specific specific source that surprised you, or was unexpected, or or maybe even changed your thinking about kind of how the story was going to be arced or, or some moment in the story? Was there something that just kind of really was was impactful in, in either a big or a small way? Yeah, good question. There's so much. And I, and I ended up not, even not you, we could do a whole show and the stuff I didn't put in, the, the cuts, the deleted scenes. But I became fascinated. This happened with Bomb, where I became fascinated with something I had never heard of. And then in Bomb, it was the, Norwegian commandos who went behind enemy lines in, in occupied Europe to sabotage the German atomic bomb project. And something similar happened with, with fallout, and it was with the Soviet submarines. That This is a little-known part of the story, and it was completely unknown to, to Americans at the time, was that the Soviets had four submarines around Cuba during the missile crisis, each with a nuclear torpedo. And the U.S. military had no idea. It was one of those things when they got together 40 years later and said, wait a minute, you had, you had that? We never would have escalated the way we had if we knew you had, you had nuclear. You could have destroyed the entire fleet, you mean? And, and like you said, imagine if these submarine captains had, had done that. How does Kennedy not respond militarily to something like that, even if he doesn't want to? And so one of those areas, and maybe the most dramatic area in which things really could have gotten out of control that wasn't being decided in Washington or Moscow because these ships were really on their own. And they had orders to use their weapons, their nuclear weapons, if they were, if it was a do or die situation and they were about to be destroyed. So, yeah, finding the sources for that was a big, big thing. And there were Luckily for me, there's there's some good ones. There are some historians who had really really good access to this these Russian officers who ran these submarines and did extensive interviews with them. Right around at the end of the Cold War, when things opened up a little bit and the Soviet files opened up for just a little while at that time, and did really good interviews. The kind of thing I could never do from my desk, you know, or this time. Nobody, these guys aren't around anymore. But so finding those interviews and 
was 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 priceless for me and uh, you know you have things like the u.s tracking them the u.s was very good at tracking submarines and and so that's a different kind of source where we could look at where they were every moment but to get some glimpse into what was happening inside inside those those submarines was that was another one of those things that i i didn't even know i was looking for because i didn't know that part of the story but once I found it, I thought, wow, that's that's such a key part of that climactic moment of the, the story. I have to be able to be inside those boats if I can. And it does come across as this, rightfully so, intense moment. I mean, it's it's amazing. So as you said, that not being there, certainly if, if you hadn't come across that, if that didn't exist, those interviews, we, we've got a different... A different sto- a story. It's going to have a slightly different tone. Mm-hmm. Steve, I, I've got to thank you for spending some time with us today. I and I've got to thank you for for writing Fallout. I, I think that it is exactly what you intended it to be—a Cold War thriller. It um, it was a pleasure to read it and a real pleasure to learn more about the back end of the story coming to being and the and the way that primary sources played a role. Steve. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Primary Source Podcast. Thank you, Tom. This was really fun.